you are listening to Impact Hustlers, and I am your host, Michael Schaffrath. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. All right, let's get started. So I'm really excited to have you on Impact Hustlers, Tom. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today. No worries. Thanks. Good to be here. Thank you. Um, so I want to start by focusing a little bit on yourself and your entrepreneurial journey. Uh, we'll get into the details of Time to Spare in a minute. Um, but you actually started your career as a consultant for Oliver Wyman. Um, and I think you actually studied economics at uh, Cambridge and uh, had that background and then went into the consultancy world. Um, what brought you from that world into uh, entrepreneurship and actually starting your own company? Um, well, I think when I was at um, Oliver Wyman, I I tended to lean towards the more sort of technical quantitative stuff that the organization did. So I was doing some sort of like SQL analysis on big payments data sets. I was doing um, some sort of like credit risk analysis of big loan books and things like that. Um, it, it wasn't sort of your traditional making PowerPoint slides look pretty. You know, there's some pretty like um, big data sets that I was looking through with that. Um, so that was kind of like my introduction into the more technical side of work and just learning some of those like quantitative coding skills. Um, and I think I, I enjoyed that, but I, I wanted just a bit more ability to sort of take some of those further um, to sort of take take a project and, and keep going with it rather than having to sort of finish when the uh, the assignment finished essentially. Um, so I, I wanted to set up a business. I've always sort of, you know, I did like young enterprises as a kid at school. I always thought the idea was quite fun. Um, and so, yeah, just, just decided that when I left Oliver Wyman, I left without a plan really. Um, and I was just decided that I was going to start my own thing afterwards um, as a bit of a gap and mostly to sort of, uh, make sure that my parents didn't completely freak out i when i when i quit i um I, did, I moved to china to beijing for six months um as like a little bit of a sort of sabbatical in the middle and basically just spent that time um like learning chinese at university out there but also trying to teach myself how to code in the afternoons and evenings um which was like vaguely successful i definitely came back not very good but able to sort of set up my own website and go from there basically all right do you think learning to code was instrumental to you launching the business or uh, was that not too relevant for that was it just a challenge for yourself yeah i mean for sure so what we do at time to spare is you know we work with charities and government who are sort of notoriously slow to pick up new things and i think if i had sort of contracted out all of the coding and the development from the very start uh, I would have run out of whatever money I had left very, very quickly, uh, just in waiting for people to sort of get back to me and sign up. So I think, yeah, it was definitely really, really important in terms of being able to try things quickly and cheaply because it's just 
my rent really that was the main cost at the start yeah absolutely so let's talk about it you left oliver wyman without a real plan you did uh learn chinese uh, i think you actually spent some time in china for for doing that right um um and um and um uh, then how did the idea come about how did you actually start to focus hmm, there's a problem to be solved between charities and government and we'll talk about the problem in a second but let's just focus how did you first discover it so the, before i was doing this i was working on a project called who's in and the idea was essentially to make it easier for people to volunteer um, to support projects or charities in their area just sort of to lower that barrier really um, so I was working on that for a few months. There wasn't a huge amount of interest in it from charities. Um, there was a little bit of interest from people who wanted to volunteer. Um, but it, you know, it wasn't taking off massively. And so I sort of sat down with a few of the charities that we had been working with and asked them, you know, clearly this isn't exactly what works for you. Um, but I'd be intrigued to know, like, you know, is there anything that, that I could do that would be more useful that would support, like, something more sort of crucial and core to the work that they do every day. Um, and it kind of surprised me that a lot of them came back with very similar um, feedback. So a lot of them were saying that recruiting new volunteers is sometimes difficult, but it's far harder to sort of manage existing projects, managing existing volunteers, collecting information about what's going on and just sort of this, this standard sort of um, kind of thing that you might see in like a CRM in a, in a, in a business just those are the real challenges that charities faced um so i sort of found that really interesting um and i i started to get slightly interested in the idea that you know there wasn't much information or data available on what charities were doing um who they were working with and sort of what activities they were organizing you know you can go into sort of the charity commission database and there's information about every registered charity but it's pretty limited there's some short bits of information about their accounts, but not really much about what they actually do. Um, but so I was like, this is kind of interesting. I can't for the life of me work out how anyone would ever, like how a business would be sustainable off the back of this idea. Um, until I met someone who was the CEO of a, a CVS. So I don't know if you know what they are, but essentially a CVS is a, a, it's a council for voluntary services. And so a lot of different areas have these organizations and they sort of, um, sit as these sort of umbrella bodies for the local charities in an area. Um, and she basically talked to me for two hours um, on like this lovely like terrace in North London, um, just going through all of the different parts of government that would find all of that information really valuable if it was actually possible to collect it. And I, this was kind of just like a me frantically, frantically writing notes because I thought it was just really interesting. And that conversation has essentially been in the business for the, the two years after that. Let's move to actually explaining everybody that's listening to us what the business actually does. So, uh, but summarizing, you really went from a journey of, you know, leaving your job behind, kind of uh, looking at your passion of getting more people to volunteer and then almost stumbling across a problem that the charities had and then finding, okay, local governments also find this valuable. So you suddenly have these two uh, actors, local governments and uh, charities that have some shared problem that you're like, okay, I could set up a company around this and helping them sort this out. So what is it actually that Time to Spare does uh, now and uh, how do you kind of solve their problems of both sides of the coin, governments and charities? 
Yeah, so what we do is for charities, we have a piece of software that we call sort of like a community activity management system, which means they use it to record information about all the work they're doing and all the people they're working with. Um, and then what we offer to governments is the ability to see sort of summary information about what those charities are doing and sort of who they're working with so that they can make better decisions around um, organisations to fund and sort of interventions or projects that they can run in their local area. And give us a bit of an idea on uh, governments funding charities, right? Like I think for most people, it seems like uh, charities are funded by our donations. And, you know, that seems to be like the biggest factor. But when you first emailed me, actually, you told me, uh, actually, um, governments are putting in the UK, at least, much more funding into charities than the private, uh, private individuals. Um, so give us some context on that. How much is actually government um, putting into these charities? And why are they doing it? Is it just uh, because they're donating some money? Or Uh, how are they actually collaborating with these charities? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's definitely um, a lot larger sum than most people are aware of. Um, so each year, the UK government gives um, £16 billion to charities across the country. And I think individual donations are something like nine and a bit billion pounds each year. Um, so actually, the, the government is sort of the single large, is the, the largest single source of income to the charity sector, um, depending on how you split things up. Um, which, you know, is pretty interesting because it's not hugely transparent and there's not much focus on where that money is coming from or going to. Um, the reason why they do that is sort of split in a couple of parts. So some of that money is given as grants. So that might just be the local government wants to support the charities in their area because they're good for the local community to have like a strong community centre or a strong like youth sports team. Um, and others might be sort of like contracts. So um, I don't, people might have heard of the sort of like social care crisis and things like that, where, you know, it's, it's very expensive for local authorities to provide social care to old adults. And often the, the way that they might choose to do that is they'll contract a charity, either a big national charity or a charity local to that area. And instead of doing that in-house, they'll sort of outsource that to the charity to do that for them. Okay, got it. And then how are those governments and charities collaborating in a world where um, uh, time to spare doesn't exist? And then maybe compare that with the charities and governments you're working with and how they've been able to bring that to another level. Yeah, I think the best example of that is sort of during the pandemic and with the um, supporting people who are self-isolating. Um, so, you know, when 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 the pandemic hit and a lot of people who were like older people or people who sort of like with immune compromised immune systems were told that they had to self-isolate or shield for a number of weeks. Um, you know, they were kind of like isolated to their homes. They weren't able to go shopping or doing sort of prescription pickups from the GP. They were told not to leave their house. Um, and so what happened was a lot of governments, a lot of local governments across the country were basically given the responsibility to support those groups of people. Um, so they might have been given like a huge list of people who are self-isolating. And then what often they did in the sort of first wave of the pandemic was basically just deliver a food parcel to everyone on that list with the address that they got. Um, and that was kind of pretty much it. I mean, that was a, a pretty big logistical arrangement to do that. But what happened was a lot of people didn't need the support because they'd managed to book a supermarket delivery 
or they didn't need the support because their younger relative had dropped food around. Um, and then there are some people who got the support, but really they needed a lot more. So they needed some sort of like mental health support or they needed to, you know, they might have lost their job because they had to self-isolate, which then meant they actually now need some support getting benefits they're entitled to. And that process of just like mass delivering to everyone didn't really account for that sort of individual variation in what people needed. Um, so what we did in Camden, which is where we worked really closely with the, the local government there and the charities in the area, was we basically set up a system where people could get referred from, they could call up the council and say, I need, it, I need help because I'm self-isolating. And they could be sent to a local charity, like a local food bank or a local community centre that was offering food, who would then either ask them to collect food if they could send a relative or deliver it to their house. Um, but then the benefit of that way around was uh, that person could also then talk to that charity that's supporting them and get extra support from sort of the Citizens Advice Bureau nearby or from all the other programmes that these community centres run. And the local government could see sort of they could they get got data at each stage of the process so they could see this person was being sent for a referral where did they go to was that referral accepted could that could that organization support or not support that person and what extra needs did that person have they could sort of see all of that in one place which meant that they could plan a bit better how to um deal with the situation um there's a really interesting bit in camden where the like the congestion charge played havoc with um volunteer drivers because they couldn't easily claim back expenses for um, delivering food to an area within the congestion yard zone and because of Camden using time to spare they could see that that gap had a clear that area of Camden had a clear gap in delivery coverage and so they brought in some sort of like bike deliveries instead of car deliveries because that sort of got around the uh, congestion charge problem but I don't don't know how easy it would have been to see that otherwise. So you're solving like a data transparency problem as well and kind of connecting different interfaces of information as well, right? Where, um, you know, uh, the government has certain information, but also lacks insights in certain things. Uh, for example, um, it's citizens that, are, that need certain help, but, you know, that information doesn't get actually connected to the government. And then you connect that information back to the charities and what are they actually doing and how are they actually delivering that seems quite a complex problem to solve in terms of collecting that data making it visible and also connecting the different actors to each other it almost seems like the charities would all need to be using your platform the government needs to use it maybe the individual citizens need to use it which seems quite a big challenge so how does it work in practice to bring this deliver this value Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a big challenge. I think in practice, um, what happens is uh, charities can sort of use parts of the platform or all of the platform. It's kind of up to them. So, you know, some some of the charities we have use it for almost everything that they do within the organization. So everything from like managing a youth club to accepting referrals to a food bank. Um, other charities might just use it for one or two things. So they might use it just for... Um, yeah, accepting referrals to people who need food who are self-isolating, or they might just use it for like requesting volunteers from a central pool of volunteers, um, which is like a much lower touch way of uh, using it. Um, so yeah, I think it does vary. Um, and then on the government side, because our main focus is on getting it useful and used by 
for charities. Uh, the government tends to be slightly more of like a consumer of the information rather than needing to like completely overhaul all their internal systems. So it's slightly, it's like slightly less effort for those people, I suppose. All right. Um, that That's very interesting. And then outside of the pandemic, what are other potential use cases where this can be used at scale if like, let's say day-to-day -day local government councils of tasks that they need to complete that you're helping them with? Yeah, I think it's basically anything which uh, the local government wants to sort of outsource into the community. So I think, you know, um, people tend to really not talk to the council unless there's something seriously wrong. So, you know, you go to the council when you're in crisis, you don't go to the council when you want to join the local board games evening. Like that, that doesn't really match up. Um, but actually like those things are really beneficial to people in terms of preventing them from ending up in that crisis position. So, you know, if there's local community centers that you can go to and meet people, then people aren't as lonely and they're more connected and they're sort of like first response to any of the sort of developing issues. Um, so actually I, I think it can be pretty broad in terms of the way it, it applies. Um, Because it could be anything that supports a community activity by any charity in the area. And so a lot of the work we've done up in the past couple of years has been just making it as flexible as possible so that it can cover all of those different potential um, use cases, basically. Got it. And um, uh, basically, you have a referral product as well where uh, local governments then can actually help their citizens as they come to them Uh, to the right charities and then keep, kind of keep track of the progress. Is that right? Yeah. So, it, you know, it's it can be really difficult to find out information about what local charities are doing um, just because there's no good central source of that. You know, you can Google around for things, but you have to dive into the 10th or 11th page to find all of the information. Um, and even for people within the charity sector or within local government, they don't know. So it's kind of hard for a like a local resident to know these things um so yeah what we what we do is try and pull all of that information together and get people accepting referrals through the same platform the same sort of format and info pieces of information um so that could be things like uh it could be food like i said earlier or it could be sort of like for legal advice cases so if someone um needs support with accessing benefits or if someone has a dispute with their landlord that they need um help with but just don't know where to go um like there's always the local citizens advice bureau but they might not always be the best um location for that sort of request for support so we just basically uh have like a little matching algorithm that uh matches a, a referral to the best suited local organization got it um so one thing i'd like to focus on in the next few minutes uh is some of the lessons you've learned throughout your journey and obviously still on your journey but you've already come a long way since you started uh, times to spare and i think one pattern i've seen when i've interviewed entrepreneurs even impact entrepreneurs let alone um just you know startup founders in general they try to stay away from governments and charities in the early days of starting their companies Because it means usually long sales cycles, you know, long decision-making uh, cycles, sometimes actually quite limited budgets. Um, and, um, you know, it's all the things that scares a founder. So obviously, you've embraced both these um, segments. 
um what have what 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 have you cracked that others weren't able to crack or uh what has been difficult about it maybe as well let's start with that um you know how did you approach all that of going into two very difficult sectors at least um, based on what most entrepreneurs would say no and I, i don't think i disagree that either of them were difficult um i think uh the main one by far is is just the amount of time it takes to make the initial decision um so the thing that we have been surprised over and over again by is we might email a charity saying we've got this tool it you know it works like this like this other charity that we know that we know that you know has is using it and they are, they recommended that we speak to you um and then we won't get a reply and then four or five months later without a follow up we'll just get an email out of the blue saying this sounds brilliant we'd love to try it when can we get signed up um and i think i don't know if, i don't think that happens in other industries where you know it's just because you've got that three or four month waiting period for while people are going through their inboxes you know there's a lot of people at charities who work part time they don't have uh they don't work five days a week um there's a lot of charities who don't make big decisions without running it past their board of trustees because that's how the governance of charities works and that might only meet every three months so you know you if you get involved at the wrong part of that cycle you're not going to hear a yes or a no for three months time which is kind of frustrating if you're if you're trying to move as quickly as possible um i think and government is exactly the same you know there's a, a a tender process for some things there's uh there's just like a you know, from first meeting uh organization the government the process of getting budget taking it to cabinet with like little writing up proposals to take to cabinet sort of the local equivalent of like a the national cabinet um you know it all takes time all takes like multiple months for every um like new sale i suppose um i think what we have found which is pretty interesting and probably what a lot of people would expect is that um you know with government there's kind of a very long process to get trusted the first time round um but there is definitely the case that you sort of once you are uh, in the door and you've crossed that threshold in terms of the all of the regulatory requirements but also just evidence that you know how to work with public sector um it's a lot quicker from then on so you know we've had situations where the first the first time took six months and then the add on piece of work took a week or less um which is really good from that perspective there's mostly also more loyalty than once they're actually working with you they tend to stick around a bit longer than maybe a private company that will constantly shop around or change or you know um, I think there may be a bit more loyalty as well, isn't it? Yeah, um, I think so. I mean, I hope. <laughs> we'll, we'll, I guess we'll have to wait Find and see. Out. That's definitely true. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the cool thing about what we're doing is, is, is we can sort of start working with the charities in an area first, while the while the local government is still making up their mind. Um, so we can get going. We don't have to wait for like the green light within the council um to to get going working with the local charities which speeds up things a little bit um got it and once you have those charity on board the government can kind of tap into that straight away pretty much um that's great yeah amazing um uh what i'd love to know um 
uh, next, I think, on, on that topic is what has been the biggest driver for you to go through this difficulty, right? I think whatever startup you're starting, it's going to be difficult, right? There's going to be like something really d tricky about it um, because otherwise plenty of other people would have done it and succeeded in it, right? Um, you're in an area that seems to be perceived as even more difficult than a lot of other areas. Um, has it been just like your focus on the mission to really, uh, you know, I really want to see this work and there's a real problem that kind of has pushed you through this difficulty or um, ha has it been like something different? Like how do, did you actually push through it? Uh, I, I'd be keen to know that. Um, I, just, I think the main sort of source of motivation really is um, like a lot of the organizations, especially the charities that we work with, are like really quite underserved by like software tools in general. Um, so yeah, if you go and work in advertising tech, you'll have 150 like competing organization, competing tech products. They're all vaguely similar. Um, but in the charity sector, like often, you know, we'll do something and it's one is it's probably like the only example of that, of that particular product or that particular feature that charities can actually use. Um, which is pretty cool. Um, but I, and the sort of result of that is that we go into a charity and show them the system we've got and like we get extremely positive feedback, um, from people very quickly. Um, and the work they're doing is, is, you know, it's really, it's really cool. Like it's, you know, you go to a local community center and the sort of activities they're putting on for people, the support they're providing to people who just like have no other way of getting that support is really inspiring. And it, just being around that and being able to help out with that in some way is extremely motivating. And whenever it feels like a bit of a slog, it's just kind of like we just go over to one of the community centers and chat to them. And it's like extremely, um, it turns that around very quickly. Basically. And was it always clear to you that there's going to be a sustainable commercial model around this as well? Or is this something that you had to figure out over time or you even considered maybe, did you consider running it as a non-profit model as well? Or, um, you know, I'd be keen to understand how you actually arrived at your current model. Yeah, I mean, I think the sustainable business model and the sort of scalable business model is something that we're always slightly working on and iterating on. It's kind of been our belief that, you know, once there, this information about charities exists in a, like an easily understandable way, there will be ways that we can convert that into a, a much more scalable business model. Um, and we're finding sort of small parts of that as we go. Um, we considered setting it up as non-profit, um, wrote like a big blog post about why we didn't. Um, I think mostly just kind of the fact that we don't quite know where we're going all the time makes it is quite tricky for a non-profit with that sort of three-month board of trustees governance structure and the having to write your purposes to the charity commission um and also knowing that everyone takes a long time to make decisions we probably needed to raise some capital initially and throughout the journey uh which you obviously can't do very easily as a non-profit so um those are the sort of two main considerations but yeah i think uh we're definitely We've definitely shown that there is a sustainable business model um, in what we're doing, but finding like things to build on top of that is always what we're working on, basically.
Mm. And is there other actors trying to push into that space and creating solutions? Uh, I've also seen a blog post you wrote on big tech won't solve government's problems. Uh, you know, like, uh, is there any solutions coming from those or big tech won't solve the voluntary sector? I think you wrote. Um, uh, is there other solutions being created? Is there a lot of competition or does it seem like a lot of companies are trying, trying to stay away from it? So I think, uh, yeah, the, the big tech won't say the voluntary sector was because like one of the former, I think he was uh, on the Monetary Policy Committee for the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, um, was talking about how uh, there's not enough tech infrastructure for the voluntary sector, especially around volunteering, which I think became really, really apparent with the volunteering over the pandemic. Um, and he was suggesting that you know, maybe Google or Facebook or Amazon or something should step in to build a volunteer platform for the whole country and they should do it as a CSR project, essentially. Um, they haven't done that and I don't think they will do that and I don't think we really want them to. Um, uh, so, yeah, they, they haven't stepped in. There are sort of other organisations and other companies, other charities even, um, working on similar things to what we're doing. Um, I think especially if you sort of break up what we're doing into some of the constituent parts, there are people who are doing like individual pieces of that fairly well. Um, I think some of them are quite, quite old. So they've been around for 20 years and it, it does kind of tell. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it's completely ignored, but it definitely doesn't have quite as much attention as it should get for what is quite a big part of government spending and the economy as a whole, essentially. Got it. And then for founders that are in your position, let's imagine somebody that's currently at Oliver Wyman um, and is thinking about selling to government or they are seeing a solution that government may be benefiting from or they see a solution that charities could benefit from. What would your biggest advice be for the early days of you know making that happen and bringing a startup off the ground that sells to government or charities or has to partner with them and depends on those sales cycles. Yeah. So I think if you are trying to sell to government and you don't have sort of those pre-existing connections to people who work in government already, I think really the only way you can do it, or at least the way we managed to do it was to do something on the cheap. So we signed like this extremely small but very flexible contract with a council in London um, where they gave us a small amount of money and told us just to go and do something that the local charity sector would find useful. Um, and so we, two of us, basically worked full-time for 12 months addressing that problem and came back with something which was useful by that point and the council got it for not much money so they were extremely happy with us. Um, which was really helpful because I think, especially within government, there's this big desire not you know, this big desire to buy sort of the proven, tested version of a system. Um, and so, if you try and sell something for quite a lot of money to people you don't know that no one else has tested or used, I don't think you'll have much success. But now, now when we're talking to people, we can say, you know, we, we've got this system, we built it, it, we've tested it in this area, and it. it does work to solve some of these problems um so it, you know, it's a much easier conversation to have basically 
Yeah. And do you feel like reference clients, obviously, it will always make sense for most startups to have a reference customer and trials and things like that. But do you feel like it works well for local governments as well, where you go from council to council and say, hey, your neighboring council is already using us. How about you? You know, uh, is that working really well for you? Yeah, I mean, we, we do exactly that. We have exactly that conversation with people. We, I have like a, a map on Figma of all of the London boroughs of where we do work and don't and sort of trying to colour them in all green. Um, so we, we do have the conversations where we say, you know, uh, the, the council just over the border that you are sort of semi-competing with are using the system and it's going well. Do you want to try it out? Um, so that, that sort of works like informally, but... Um, I don't know if people don't know much about government procurement, there's like a lot of different ways that um, governments can buy things. And one of them is sort of like on an open tender um, where they sort of announce to the world that they're about to pay for something. Um, and then those have like explicit, um, what do you call them? explicit evaluation fl- frameworks attached to them. So, you know, there'll be a, a certain percentage of it will be judged based on price. A certain percentage of it will be based judged on like quality. And often the uh, the quality score, at least some part of that, will just be, have you done this kind of project with other gov- parts of government? Um, so if you don't have something to put in that box, you'll get zero marks on that score. And if sometimes there's a, like a hard limit where if you don't have an example of that, you're just simply not considered for that project. So I think you know, there's sometimes like very formal reasons why it's extremely helpful in saying to government. Amazing. And throughout uh, the time that you've uh, run uh, Time to Spare now, I think you've been running it for more than two years, almost three years now. Uh, what's been the hardest challenge you had to resolve or the ha- hardest, most difficult part you had to learn? I think it was probably the uh, the experience at the start of the pandemic when up to then we'd been working with charities, helping them sort of um, record information about their events in person. Um, and a lot of the events were for like older people. So it was sort of drop-in centers for older people, which for like extremely obvious reasons had to completely shut down during the pandemic and have really only opened up in the past two months or so. Um, and so we had to basically completely change what we were doing as a business, um, for the, for that year. Um, and basically build two new products on top of what we had already within those six months to sort of keep the business afloat because there was just not anyone who was going to use or be interested in what we had up to, up to that point, which was, you know, a big challenge, lots of sort of long days and late nights, but pretty satisfying because we did actually manage to keep growing despite that, which was pretty, pretty good. We thought, so that was cool. Yeah. And they already mentioned how you were able to help councils during the par- pandemic as well. But uh, I think, it's probably just one of the examples of businesses pivoting and changing their models uh, faced with the pandemic, uh, which is great to hear. My last question for you would be, if you imagine the world in 10 years, uh, maybe the world of charities and council corporation or government uh, in a broader sense, um, how does the world look like in 10 years if time to spare succeeds in your mission? So I think the big change would be that the way that councils decide to spend money is more determined by the uh, sort of communities and people in their area and not just councils, but also sort of like central government. So at the moment, like often 
a council will make a decision and then they'll find out who to give that money to off the back of that. Um, and what would be really cool is if instead it is people saying, uh, it's more easily to say, uh, like, these are the people that need support. These are the support that, that is needed. Um, and we therefore think that you should fund that in some way. Um, and sort of the impetus and the drive for like some of that funding and that um, commissioning is coming more bottom up rather than sort of driven top down from uh, like central government, basically. Amazing. Uh, Tom, thanks very much for uh, sharing your journey with us, uh, explaining what you're already doing uh, with councils and charities alike at the moment and uh, really love your vision for the future. So thanks so much for taking the time and all the best for the future. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impact hustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.